Aaron, the high priest, and all of his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, when they entered the Sanhedrin and the full assembly of the elders of Israel and sent to the jail, or sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked and the guards standing at the door. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. And he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him with his, to his own right hand as the prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were furious and went to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up at the Sanhedrin and ordered them that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Thaddeus appeared and claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him, and he was killed. All of his followers were dispersed, and all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared to him in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He, too, was killed, and all of his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go, and for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. Our God, we pray that you'll open the eyes of our heart. You say that when you answer that prayer, the thing that we see specifically, is the immeasurability of your grace and your power. Which, Lord, I guess would mean when our eyes are not open, the eyes of our heart are blind or dull or fuzzy, the thing that we forget is that your grace and your power are without limit. And so whether we come in discouragement or we come thirsty and hungry to hear from you, whether we know we know you or don't know if we know you, come and be God. Come and be a savior. Come and be a comforter. Come and be truth for us. Uh, tonight, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, we're in the height of hurricane season, and unfortunately, in the past couple of weeks, we've seen the tragedy of what a Category 5 hurricane can do. One thing that I've always been fascinated with is watching as people prepare for these big storms coming for their town. 
Last year, I think it was Hurricane Matthew, I think I got the right hurricane, when it hit the Gulf Coast around Panama City. Uh, we did a mission trip there this past spring. I was uh, watching as that was a Category 5 hurricane, like 170 mile an hour winds in the Gulf of Mexico, and it was directly coming for Panama City. And I saw a news report of this reporter with a microphone in this middle-aged mom's face, and all of her three little kids were there with her. And he said, why are you staying? They're predicting a huge storm surge, like unbelievable winds. Why are you staying? And this is what she said. We're staying because if my house gets blown away, I don't want to come back to nothing. You think about that. <laughs> We're staying because if my house gets blown away, I don't want to come back to nothing. You're like, you sure you don't want to think this through a little longer before this storm comes? And it's almost humorous. I don't know what happened to that lady. I hope she's fine. But <laughs> here's the point. The reality of that certain storm coming for her town somehow wasn't impacting her life or the decision she was making at all. She knows that storm is coming. She lives in Florida. She's experienced things like this before. She can feel the breeze picking up and the waves coming in. She knows it's real. She knows it's coming, but it's in no way affecting her present decisions and her present life. Why a lot of people do this? I mean, the hurricanes the past couple of weeks, a lot of people stay. Why Probably because we're people of habit, we get stuck in ruts, we really like our status quo, and it's really disruptive to leave town for a week and not know when you're going to get to be back home. All your stuff's out there for people to come and steal. We love the status quo. We, we're resistant to radical change that uproots the familiarity of our life. And I tell you those stories because I think there's a similar dynamic with why many of our lives, and talking to the Christians in the room, and I guess all of us, I mean, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, this dynamic, I think, explains why many of our lives remain unchanged and unaffected by the event in human history. If it happened, right, we would say the Bible says it happens. If you have a qualm with that, let's meet up and talk. But if Jesus claimed to be God and then raised up from the dead verifiably, it is the center point of history. How does it have such little impact on the day-to-day -day realities and decisions of our life? Well, I think it's the same reason mom stayed in her house with her three kids in the storm. It's really inconvenient, especially if you're 18, 19, 20, and you're just encountering this for the first time, and you're like, really rethink my whole life? Really, God, kind of turn upside down all of my life and shake it and it all gets rearranged and all gets put in a different order? I think that's why this happens. Rachel just read this passage and in it, she talked about the Sadducees. The Sadducees were one of these political parties, one of these theological parties in the first century in Jerusalem. We have our Tea Party and our progressives and our conservatives. They had the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Zealots, the Sadducees. And the Sadducees had a really good thing going in first century Jerusalem. They were not a big group of people, but what they lacked in numbers they made up for in political influence, social status, and power. The Sanhedrin, which Rachel talked about, the passage talks about, was kind of like the Jewish Senate. It was a throwaway that Rome gave the Jews to say, okay, yeah, yes, you're our subjects. Yes, you answered us, but y'all can have your little, your little Congress over here. And they got to decide some stuff. 
And the Sadducees had a lockdown on the Sanhedrin. They ran the show. They called the shots. Now, a little bit more about the Sadducees. They were kind of the upper crust, well-educated, elite, liberal, progressive theologians of the day. And they ran this place. Here's another thing that's a little more personal. They knew all about this Jesus of Nazareth. They're all, we're assuming they're all older men, which means they would have been alive for Jesus' birth, life, ministry, crucifixion, and people claiming that he was raised up from the dead. So they were familiar with this guy. I mean, they had a hand in him being crucified. So why the opposition? Why the violent opposition a few months after they had him put to death? I think it's the same reason mom didn't change her life and we don't change our lives. They're just like the rest of us. They had a vested interest in tomorrow being just like yesterday was. We just don't like disruptive change like this. We just don't like inconvenient realities that we know uh, demand everything being rethought from square one. They, they really enjoyed the life that they already had. It was working really nicely for them. How do we know it was working really nicely for them? What do, we, what do I mean when I say that? Verse 26, we know that they had power and status, and we know that they depended on this power and this status. They're starting to lose it in this account that, we're, that we read earlier. It's starting to hang by a silk thread, this role that they had in the community. They're starting to wonder, are the people going to turn on us? Is our popularity going to diminish? We better not lay hands on the apostles this time, at least not in public. We don't want the crowd to turn on us. And they knew that if the, if the accounts that were spreading virally throughout Jerusalem, that that Jesus that we all killed and then moved on with our lives, if he really is back and alive and king and God, they rightly understood the implications of that. If, same for you and me, right? If Jesus is who he said he is and he rose from the dead physically and he has ascended in power, sitting at the right hand of the only God, Reigning over all things, it means the same for you and me that it did for the Sadducees. It means life fundamentally is not about you or my agenda anymore. It's fundamentally about him. So is the world and so is history. And they knew that if that happens, we're not the center of the social scene in Jerusalem anymore. We're not kind of the, we don't have a monopoly on the political power anymore. We're not going to get our way if this is true. That's why they told the apostles, shut up and stop talking about what Luke calls these words of new life. And Luke is, Luke is very specific. And he says they were filled, a cup, overflowing with jealousy. The apostles were beginning to get what the Sadducees loved and needed, which was attention, power, acclaim, popularity, a following, they saw it as a direct threat. They had to neutralize the threat. So interesting, isn't it, that it was a craving of power, attention, and a status quo that was the root cause of their opposition to the gospel. It's really just two things we're going to talk about tonight, this opposition to the gospel that we're already seeing in our response to it. That was the cause of their and everybody's opposition to the claims that the good news of Jesus Christ makes. That was the source of that opposition, even if it meant strangling Jerusalem 
off from words of life. Words that we've already seen in the first five chapters of Acts literally were transforming the lives of thousands by the day. Bringing enemies together, bringing racial, uh, races together, and different ethnicities together in, in unity, creating community like we talked about last week. They were willing to completely cut the people off from that sustenance and that life to preserve their power. N.T. Wright really captures this the source of this opposition really well. He says, we could cope, the world could cope with a Jesus who ultimately remains a wonderful idea inside his disciples' hearts and minds. But the world cannot cope with a Jesus who comes out of the tomb, who unleashes God's new creation right in the middle of the old one. His resurrection is the beginning of God's new project to colonize earth with the life of heaven. When we say gospel, we don't just mean that Jesus died for our sins and was raised up and forgives us. That's the bulk of it. But what he did on the cross in, in, in his death and his resurrection was actually reclaiming all of creation as the maker of it. And now he becomes the remaker of it. And now he's redoing everything, renewing everything, I should say. Not redoing, renewing everything from individual human beings, men and women, to family units and economic systems and politics, and art, and science, and the intellect. He is systematically renewing it all. Now, that gospel, the gospel that N.T. Wright talks about in that quote, is very dangerous to people who love the way things are. Make sense? It's an existential threat to the way things are because that gospel claims to be a systematic wholesale reversal of the way things are. All of it, right? That's why it's so threatening. In opposition to this gospel is a denial of your need for whole-scale, whole-personed renewal. Every piece of you, all the parts of your humanity, from your brain to your body to everything else, needs to be removed, renewed needs to be touched by God and made good again and clean again, your sins cleared. Opposing Jesus and his gospel is an assertion that you don't need renewal. It's self-righteousness. It is a dragging your heels in the sand saying, not me, I'm fine, no thanks. Ravi Zacharias, if we could pull up this quote, Ravi Zacharias hits this piece on the, on the head. And he says, a person rejects God neither because of intellectual demands nor because of the scarcity of evidence. A person rejects God because of a moral resistance that refuses to admit their need for God. The question is sometimes asked, or the comment is made, if God came down right now in front of me, I'd believe. Believing is seeing. Reality is different. Sorry, uh, seeing is believing is the way that the phrase goes. The reality is believing is seeing. You've got to have faith in something to be able to see it as it is and take it on its terms and not impose on it whatever other beliefs that you have. And what Ravi Zacharias captures really well, if we can pull that up and leave it up um, just for a second so you can see that, what he captures so well is that there's not a scarcity of evidence here. The Bible lists names and addresses of people who saw the resurrected Jesus as if to say, don't believe me, go knock on their door and ask them. That's journalism. That's history. That's the historical method. 
verify it over and over and over and over and over again. He's saying it's not scarcity of evidence even today. I know it's 2,000 years ago, and you're like, well, none of us saw it. But we have historical accounts of it. What do you do with those historical accounts? Do you immediately dismiss and say, well, that's from the Bible. I just wholesale dismiss that source. Why? Why? What other authority told you to just dismiss it that you've yielded your life to and obeyed? Why do you just by faith dismiss something because it's in the Bible? It's not a lack of evidence. It's not a lack of being persuaded. It is a, it's a lack of wanting to hand over the reins of our lives because we don't, want, we don't trust God. We don't believe He's good. It is a moral resistance that refuses to admit my need for God. That's why people oppose the gospel, the scriptures, Christianity, God. So, real quick, what should you do if you're sitting here feeling like, oh my gosh, I feel this resistance in my heart, like the more this guy talks, the angrier I get or the more scared I get? What do you do if right now you're feeling resistance, aversion, fingernails on a chalkboard? Two things I got, I got two ideas, I just came up with these, but I think they're helpful. Um, the first is, stop giving your doubts about Jesus a free pass. Why did those get to lie in your head untouched and unchallenged, the way you challenge everything else? Why do they have a no trespassing sign on them? Everything else in your world gets critiqued and scrutinized except your skepticism. Why? Start treating your doubts the way you treat everything else, the way you treat, perhaps, the historical biblical account. Subject them to the same scrutiny you do everything else. Take the kid gloves off and start treating them the way you do everything else. And I'd say this, and perhaps this is even more helpful, hopefully, or, or barks up the right tree better. Ask yourself, why do I have such a vested interest in Jesus not being raised from the dead and having authority over my life? Why the aversion? Why the mistrust? Why does that sound like a bad idea to me? Or if you're a Christian and you believe it, why the aversion to yielding more and more of your life, your sexuality, yielding it to his resurrection power, saying it's not the way it's supposed to be. I need him to renew it. Your romantic life, it's not the way it's supposed to be. I need Jesus to be, have authority over this and healing and to be king over this. Your family life, why the aversion to these things? Why is there a no trespassing sign there? He doesn't get to touch that. That's what you can do when you feel this resistance in your heart the way I feel it in mine. Lastly, add it to a really long list of other reasons you need Jesus Christ. You and I need him for a thousand reasons. What's one more reason? Lord, on top of the other 999 reasons, I desperately need someone just like you who's alive and good and, and loving and compassionate and kind and present. The thousandth reason I need you is my heart is twisted and I feel put off by you and I feel like I can't believe in you. Isn't that a reason you need a physician more than a reason you need to stay home? It is. Consider that. I told you we'd talk about two things, the source of opposition and how to respond to it, how to respond to it. So what is our response to this opposition? Well, we should probably base it on what we see happening in this passage, right? It's probably a good place to go look. So as I kind of read through and summarize real quick how the apostles responded to this opposition, 
violent, fierce, state-sanctioned opposition. You should remember that just a few months prior to this, just a few months, like let's say this is whatever, uh, you know, June, we're talking about what happened in April. How did they respond to opposition then? How did they respond to violent persecution then? They slept, unaffected by it. Mom in the house as the hurricane comes. They hid, paralyzed with terror of what would happen to them. Their leader's head got chopped off, and they're wondering what's going to happen to my head. So they hid behind locked doors, the late, late chapters in the Gospels tell us. They denied Jesus repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. I don't even know the man. And they despaired, convinced that the horse they bet on and put all their money in was the losing horse. And so they were despairing. Same men and women described in this passage three months prior, which begs the question, what happened? Because here's where they were a few months later. They were publicly proclaiming in the temple courts that Jesus is the Messiah. That is a loaded phrase if you're a Jew. Still to this day, it is a big cosmic claim that Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. All of God's promises from ancient times came true in this man who is God. And they weren't doing it on the fringes like, let's have a secret little club in our condo. And just if you're interested, come talk. The temple courts publicly, daily. They were saying this stuff. That's begging. That is begging to get executed. And they're doing it every day. They fearlessly walk into the same Sanhedrin that had signed the death warrant of Jesus Christ three months prior. Fearlessly walk into that same room. They unflinchingly offer their backs for what was likely Uh, tradition among the Sadducees of 40 lashes minus one. It was thought 40 lashes would kill you. So 39 is what they gave Jesus. 39 is probably what they gave them. And these are are scourgings where flesh is ripping off the whip as it's pulled out of your back. And this says they left thanking God that they were counted worthy to suffer similar suffering that Jesus himself did. What? They were wetting their pants three weeks, three months earlier. What happened? What caused the dramatic change? The short answer is that they saw the man that they knew and loved and had learned from verifiably raised from the dead. Unquestionably, touchably, sensorially, or whatever that word is, with their sensory. They saw him touch to them, ate, heard him. They saw him raised from the dead, and they connected it to the implications that that had. 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. The converse of that is if he has been raised from the dead, your faith is of greatest consequence about you, and you are alive, free from your sins, past, today, and anything that's going to happen next week. You have been inalterably put into Jesus, made innocent forever, freed from everything. That's what they knew happened. But what change did this produce inside of them? That's what caused the dramatic difference, but what did it change about how they lived their life? We're beginning to circle back around to this lady in her house in the hurricane. What should have happened there? Or what could have happened there? Well, what it did was this. 
It produced a faith-rooted confidence, which we've already established was not a characteristic trait of any of these people before you go off and try to emulate them. A faith-rooted confidence. I wanted to say faith-rooted fearlessness. The preacher in me really wanted that. I can't say that to you, though, because it's not true. Because they were actually full of fear. If you've been here the past four weeks, you've heard Luke, every single passage say, and all of them were full of the fear of the Lord. Awe was upon all of them. So they, it's not that they were fearless. It's that they finally feared the right thing. Let me define fear real quick. We get this word mixed up sometimes. To fear God means to be impressed by God. It means to be overwhelmed by him, unquestionably rely on him. It means to respect him. The way we say, respect the weather, don't go out in a lightning storm. Or if you're a kayaker or a paddler, respect the river. It has a power of itself. Or respect the stallion that you're trying to break and tame because it has a, just an un, untamable power to it. To fear God is to be just unimaginably impressed by him. My, my kids fear me in this sense. <laughs> my kids fear me, which means when they fear monsters and stuff under the bed, which happens occasionally mostly with Eli and Noah, there's a monster under my bed or in the closet. They're not too afraid about that anymore because they fear me more than the monster. They're still at the age where they think I can do anything. They think I'm strong. Daddy can do whatever. He can do everything. He can fight monsters. If I'm in the room, because of their superior fear of me, they're impressed with me. They're confident when I'm around. They respect me. They're overwhelmed by me. Their fear of monsters just dissipates. It's the same way if you're in a basement during a tornado, your fear, you're, you being impressed with these strong, thick, concrete walls makes you almost like you're like on your phone during a tornado, unafraid, or confident because of what you are in. Fear conquers other fears. The disciples were not fearless. They were just fearful of the right thing. This is what Peter says when he says to the Sanhedrin, the executors of his Lord and Master, he says, we must not fear man or obey man. We must fear, obey God. You will obey whatever you fear. You'll obey whatever you fear. Here's our options, friends. We will fear God, and we will be unimaginably impressed and overwhelmed by Him, His power, how He uses His power for your sake, or you will be overwhelmingly impressed by the dimensions and the size and the magnitude of your circumstances. Those are the two options in life. Fear God and be free or fear everything else and be a slave. Fear every changing fickle circumstances, all of the what-ifs that could happen tonight and tomorrow. Apart from the Spirit's work in you and you consciously being more and more impressed with God because you're listening to the apostles' teaching, we will be supremely impressed with a whole host of fears Others' opinion of you. What do your friends think about you? What do these people in this new community have started to go to? What do they think about me? You'll be perpetually afraid and you won't come around or you'll be a, try to be a different person when you are around. 
or you'll never talk about Jesus. You'll never bear witness to this gospel on campus with your friends who desperately need to hear these words of new life because you're afraid of what they're going to think about you, what they're going to say about you. If we are supremely impressed with not missing out, we will never, ever, ever make a commitment to anybody, and our relationships will show it. If we are supremely impressed or fearful of fulfilling and filling every want and every desire that we feel, our lives will just become preoccupied with chasing all of these tiny little missions we talked about last week, debauchery, serial hookups, all these little things that promise mission, meaning, band of brothers, band of sisters, and all they really do is just kill you. Unless the Spirit is increasingly impressing you with who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you will be increasingly impressed with all of the internships coming your way that you're trying to get, all of the jobs that you're trying to get, all the friends that you're trying to get, the, the weight on the scale that you're trying to get, the shape of your nose that you're trying to get. Everything else under the sun will impress you and terrify you and crush you. There is only one that you can fear and be set free. And it is a God who uses his power for the benefit of people who have no business benefiting from his power. The last chunk of this, why is this essential? Why, why do we need this faith-rooted confidence? And wh why do we say it's rooted in faith? Well, because it's rooted in something outside of you. Have faith in yourself are the worst words a person's ever spoken. Do you know yourself yet? Are you self-aware yet? Do you really want to have faith in yourself? What's your track record? <laughs> Gosh, I don't want to put faith in myself. What about putting faith in another who is proven, solid, airtight, ironclad? That's what Peter's little sermon is about. He's in front of these people who he probably thinks are about to slice off his head and that of his wife and that of the others. And he's sitting there and he's telling him a little sermon. It's like a five-sentence sermon, but it's all about God, what God has done. Peter's faith, the apostles' faith is in someone outside of themselves about what God has done. That's what Peter's impressed with. This Jesus that God raised up to grant forgiveness of sins and repentance, which is the doorway to forgiveness of sins. That's what Peter and the apostles are impressed with. And because they fear God in that sense, ironically, they stopped fearing all the other stuff, even spears, even crosses, even social derision, even being talked about as idiots by the people even being rejected by family members, even persecution, even violent persecution. Chip and I were, he mentioned earlier, we were at Ideal Bagel last week, and he said something that I wrote down. I didn't know it'd come up this quickly, Chip, but it fit. Um, he was talking about watching reruns of the Rose Bowl game from a couple of years ago. He watches them a lot, I think, but he knows the outcome. So he said this, watching reruns of the Rose Bowl makes each first down a little sweeter and takes the sting out of every fumble. Why? You know how the game ended, right? You're not on the edge of your chair every time there's a fumble or some stupid player penalty because you know where it's all going. And every first down is a little sweeter because you're like, oh, an inch closer to one of the most amazing victories ever. You know the ending. And so it helps you enjoy the game all the better. Friends, this is something so much better than Gamaliel's speech. He gives this speech, which is wise. I guess it's wise. I mean, 
you, look, you can go read from the Bible, you can go read from Josephus, you can go read from other historians uh, who are not Christians at all, who wrote about these other people who claim to be messiahs. Theodos, Judas the Galilean, yeah, they had political revolutions, hundreds of followers, they died, it ended. And Gamaliel says, well, let's just wait and see if there's anything to this Jesus. I bet he spent the rest of his life waiting and seeing, and you will too. But we have something so much better than a wait and see. We have a look over there at this Jesus raised up as king and as savior to give both repentance and forgiveness of sins. I'm so glad he says both. Because if you just said forgiveness of sins, but you have to repent, you're left wondering, well, how do I conjure that up? How does this self-righteousness have kept me from God my whole life, this demand that I'm okay and I don't need him? How do I get rid of that? Oh, you need him to get rid of that for you before you'll ever even come to him. Jesus was raised up to give you the gift of both. So we have something so much better than Gamaliel's gamble. We have a gospel of a finished work, of a crucified Messiah who now reigns to give grace to you and to renew the world. We end with this piece of a letter written in 130 A.D., it's in a letter that historians have called the Epistle to Diognetes. We don't know who wrote it, but this is what it said. This is a picture of believers whose lives aren't dominated and dictated by their circumstances, but they are impressed finally by somebody else, supremely, and it has set them free. Speaking of these Christians in the 100s AD in the Near East, they love all people and are persecuted by all people. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all things. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor they are glorified. They are poorly spoken of, and yet they are justified. They are reviled, but they bless they are insulted, and they repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. This is now a hundred years after the account that Rachel read from Acts 5. It was still happening, and it's still happening today. Jesus, by his grace, calls you into this family, calls you into this, whether, whether you are an opponent of his or whether you are his son or daughter, but there's opposition in your heart. Cry out to him for this spirit to conquer you and to have all of you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, do these very things, would you? Because you have been raised up as king, you win. Your church will be victorious. The kingdom of God will prevail and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So let us know that the game that we're in, the world that we're in, all of it will be brought to a place of goodness and grace and peace and love and presence with you here on this earth forever. Please create in us this faith-rooted confidence, and may that be the reason we become less anxious people and people who open our mouths about you. We ask this in your name.